Uh, if you have your Bibles, uh, please turn to the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 8. Luke, uh, chapter 8. This morning, uh, I plan on working through uh, a relatively large section of verses 22 through 56. And what I want to do is, uh, I want to, at different times, you know, as we work through the Gospel of Luke, there are times when I want to take bigger sections and try to demonstrate how Luke has arranged material on the basis of themes. And too often we come to the Gospels and we read them, and we read them in terms of uh, small units, individual stories, and it's good to do that. It's good to think about the lessons we can learn uh, from individual sections, but it's also very important to see how the Gospels have been particularly arranged so that different sections and different units actually work together uh, to help build up a particular message or a particular emphasis. So we're going to be working through this section together. Because it's longer, I'm not going to do what I normally do. If you're here every week, you know that usually I'll read the entire scripture passage that I'm going to be preaching on. Then we pray, and then I start to unfold it. This week, I'm going to pray, and then we're just going to start working through the passage together. I'm not going to take the time to read it all ahead of time. Just before we pray, though, I want to mention two things that may be helpful to you. One uh, is that uh, the library has been gone through, and uh, Ruth and others have done a fantastic job uh, in arranging uh, the material. We've got some new books in, uh, made it more accessible, some excellent new titles uh, by Tim Keller and others. So uh, the library is just down uh, the main hall uh, on the left. If you've never been in there, uh, I'd really encourage you. There's some good material there. Uh, take some time to go in, uh, look and see if there's something that you might benefit from. Uh, there probably is. Uh, so if you haven't been in there for a while, it's a great opportunity. And uh, make sure you say thank you to Ruth and to her team uh, for the fantastic job they've done maintaining that and for making it an accessible place where we can find edifying uh, resources. Uh, another thing is, it's great to have Sam uh, back, of course, and uh, you know that we've missed Sam uh, tremendously over the last few months, uh, almost, I guess, six months, really, you know, at this point. Uh, Brian no longer is on staff uh, with us, and so we've been uh, scrambling a little bit. Uh, there's a lot of work uh, to be done, and unfortunately for you, I'm not competent at really anything. So when there's additional stuff, uh, it's not that easy uh, to handle. One of the things that Sam has done an excellent, excellent job of, among other things, is maintaining contacts with people in terms of visitation, uh, those who can't get out uh, all of the time here to the church. Uh, I've been able to do most of our hospital visitation, probably not doing a perfect job, not doing as good of a job as Sam does, uh, but I've been able to maintain that. What we do need, though, what we're looking at doing is is we'd like to put together a, a, a ministry where people in the church will visit other people in the church. Uh, it, James says that religion that is pure and faultless is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by their world. So if you want pure religion, uh, it's not just the pastor's job right? Uh, visiting is not just something the pastor is supposed to do. It's part of the life of the body. It's part of fellowship, working together, helping each other. And of course, there are times when it is more appropriate and more comfortable for uh, women to visit women uh, than for pastors or elders to go in. Uh, so if 
that's something that you might be able to do, if that's something that you'd be interested in doing, uh, it's not depending on what your availability is, uh, bigger or smaller time commitments, but if you'd be willing to be part of a visitation team to help us really continue to minister and have ties with people who aren't able to get out here all the time, uh, please come and speak to me. And actually, and a couple of people have spoken to me already. It wasn't even my idea. Uh, I was approached and said, is there anything we can do to help in, in this area? And there is. So this is something we'd like to get organized. If you can help, please come and see me, and we'll try to do something that can be a blessing uh, to the church. Before we look to the Word of God, let's pray. Our Father, you really do live in heaven, a place that you have created as your throne room. And yet, Lord, the highest heavens cannot contain you. You are transcendent and you are imminent. You are in heaven, but you are also here. There is no place in space or time where you are not with the full totality of your being. And Lord, we confess that this mode of existence is something that we can't comprehend. But we honor you and we praise you that you are a God unlike anything else. There is no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth who is like you. You and you alone are in a category all by yourself. You are holy. And yet you love us. And you have provided a way for us to know you through your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray that we will do so. We pray that you will work in our hearts by your spirit. Help us to know you, the great and true and living God. Pray that you will transform our lives, that you will make us holy as you are holy. Uh, that you will help us see the great privilege that it is of belonging to you and being adopted into your family. Uh, Father, I pray that you will forgive us for our many sins. Uh, I pray that you will forgive us for the things that we have done that we should not have done. I pray that you will forgive us for the things that we ought to have done that we have failed to do. And I pray that you will, by your grace, refine us and make us more and more like Jesus Christ. Lord, for those in this place this morning who have heavy hearts, I pray that your spirit will be at work in them. Lord, help every one of us to really leave knowing that we have met with the living God, a God of compassion and mercy and holy justice and a God of love. Father, there are many who are sick. Uh, There are many who have suffered loss. We pray that you will comfort them, that you will bring healing. In a special way, uh, Lord, this morning I want to uh, remember Sue Bott and just pray that you will have your hand upon her and give her comfort uh, in body and in soul and in heart and in mind. And I pray for those uh, who love her and who minister to her and who take care of her. Uh, Father, I just pray that this morning your word will be opened uh, for the glory of your namesake and for the glory of your namesake alone. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week, if you were here, uh, you know that we worked through the first 21 verses of Luke chapter 8, and if you weren't here, I'll tell you what it was about anyway. It has the parable of the sower in it, and are very familiar with the contour of that parable, and the point is, the, par- the point of the parable of the sower is that the seed is the word of God, and you need to make sure that you are hearing it properly. Now, you need to make sure that by God's grace, you have a receptive heart to the word. So in chapter 8, verse 8, Jesus gives the parable, and before he gives the explanation, he calls out, this is in a loud voice, 
Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. It's a parable about hearing the word of God. In verse 15, it says, But the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and a good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering produce a crop. Verse 18, Therefore consider carefully how you listen. In verse 21, My mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. It's about hearing. You are part of the family of God if you hear his word and put it into practice. Luke has some of the highest material in praise of Mary in Luke chapter 1. And yet here Jesus says, although Mary was told by the angel, you, know, you are highly favored, you are blessed over all women. Here Jesus says, anyone, male or female, who hears the word of God and puts it into practice is more blessed in their relationship to me than Mary is on the basis of her relationship to me as a mother and a son. And that's an incredible thing. The, the privilege of being related to Jesus, that we have an intimacy with him, we have a connection with him. If we hear the word of God and obey it, if we listen to Jesus and put it into practice, then our relationship with him is more special than the relationship that Mary had with Jesus. And that's a remarkable thing. The question is this, though. Why would you hear his word and put it into practice? In other words, what is it about Jesus that makes him worth listening to? I mean, let's not kid ourselves. Our age is not the first age of skepticism. There have always been skeptics. You know, there have always been people who wanted proof. Why should we listen to you? Today, you know, we have so many competing authorities. You know, we have people who, who wrongly, and you can demonstrate this fairly easily, you know, through philosophical analysis. You know, the people who will say that in science and in science alone there is truth. You know, that you can't listen to, you know, old religious stories. You know, why would you listen to Jesus? Why would you trust a book? Why would you, you know, there's, so many things that we know now that we've never known before. You know, who should you listen to? You know, the churches disagree with each other. And why would you listen to the teachings of, you know, a Jewish rabbi who was crucified 2,000 years ago? Why would you hear him? How do you know that the word of Jesus is worth building your life upon? Well, I, I can tell you. Build your life on my words. But why should you listen to me? I mean, actually, I can give you a lot of reasons why you shouldn't. Right? You can probably think of some yourself. Uh, why should you listen to me? Why should you listen to anyone who comes along and says, build all of your life on me and on my words? But what, what can Jesus do to demonstrate to us that his word is powerful and authoritative and trustworthy? Why should we listen when he tells us, to listen. Verse 22, we were told this. One day Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and set out. As they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake so the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him saying, master, master, we are going to drown. Now, the Sea of Galilee 
We know that storms can actually come very quickly, uh, even today. It's a dangerous uh, patch of water uh, to be on. And a lot of the disciples, not every disciple, but a lot of the disciples were professional fishermen. They had spent time on this body of water. They knew the sea. They knew storms. They had lots and lots and lots of experience. And so when these guys are saying, Lord, we are going to drown. This is not the overreaction of someone like me, you know, who wants his life jacket on before he gets into the boat. You know, this is the reaction of people who've been here. They've seen a hundred storms and they are saying, we're done. There is no coming out of this one. We're going to drown. So then Jesus got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided and all was calm. This morning, I woke up, as did you. But this morning I woke up and I looked outside and it was snowing. Did anyone notice that uh, this morning? And by sheer force of my will, I tried to stop the snow. No! (laughs) How can this be happening? Uh, Stop snowing! You know what happened? At my house, it stopped. It was amazing. Yeah, <laughs> it kept snowing. It didn't, my word had absolutely no effect whatsoever. It, my word is not able to stop the snow, the flurries, the storm, or anything. And we should know. And if you ever want to actually really be impressed by this text, try to stop something sometime. Or actually, when I was teaching at a junior camp once, you know, there was a creek with some rapids, and I took these kids out there. I said, all right, guys, girls, we're going to tell the water to stop flowing. We're going to calm the rapids. And they kind of look at you like, that's not possible, right? He's like, no, just, just humor me. You know, so we commanded the water to stop flowing. We yelled at the water to stop flowing. Some of the boys, because boys always like to throw rocks, threw rocks at the water. Is this saying snowing? Yeah, flowing, uh, flowing, snowing. You know, we threw rocks at the water to try to get it to stop flowing. Nothing worked. And, and you walk away and you're saying, we know it's impossible. But can you imagine what it was like? What we would react like if someone actually spoke and it worked? Jesus speaks, and the language that he uses here when he says he rebuked the wind and the waves, it's the same language that he's used earlier to describe rebuking demons in his exorcisms. Be quiet. Be still. Be muzzled. Those are all adequate translations for what he says here. So the storm is presented as a force that can stop Jesus. Now, one of the things that's very interesting about this, then, is Jesus says, where is your faith? He doesn't say, you don't have any faith. He says, where is it? Why isn't it showing up? You know, what kind of faith do you have when you just bury it, when you're afraid and you don't bring it into action? Where is it? Bring it out. You have faith. You trust me. Act like it. Don't forget your faith. And what are they, what are they trusting in? They're trusting in a very sort of implicit promise that Jesus had made to them. He said, let us go over to the other side of the lake. He was going to get them across that lake. 
He had said, we're going to the other side. And this is one of those things, you know, I don't want to be careful. I don't want to allegorize this and I don't want to psychologize this. And too often we say, you know what? Jesus stilled the storm. So when you go through the storms of life, metaphorically, Jesus will calm them. There's some truth to that. I don't want to dismiss that. But here you have a historical, Christological event where in history, Jesus is revealing who he is. It's not about your psychological storms. It's not about, you know, sickness. It's about Jesus being confronted with an obstacle and the powers of nature that seem to prevent him from doing what he said he was going to do. And he responds to it like it's a demonic power. You will not stop me. Be quiet. Be still. And everything was calm. His disciples are duly impressed. And in fear and amazement, wonderful combination, they asked one another, Who is this? He commands even the winds and the water. And they obey him. Now notice this, he commands. He doesn't even ask God to do it. He doesn't stand up and pray, Father, still the storm. He says, be muzzled, be quiet. Jesus himself, speaking with the authority of God, can calm the literal storm on the Sea of Galilee. Now, This means that if you're being a thoughtful listener, that Jesus has just given you one really, really compelling example as to why you should hear his words. Why should you build your life on his words? Why should you have ears to hear? Why should you put his words into practice? His word is such that he can stand up in the middle of a raging storm and he can say, stop, and it stops. Who else do you know like that? What other people have words of power like that? This is a clear revelation of the character and power of Jesus. There is no one who has words like this. He can speak and a storm is still. This is someone you want to listen to. There's more. They sailed to the region of Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. Now, it's very easy for us to just gloss over all these stories. We're so familiar with them. But here is someone who is absolutely devastated emotionally and psychologically and physically and socially. He lives in a graveyard. He doesn't wear clothes. I'm not being funny. I'm not attempting to be funny when I say this. It's pretty apparent that someone like this is not going to have any friends. He has no support network. There's no one who who talks with him. There's no one who cares for him. If he has a family, his family is terrified by him. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his voice, shouting, or at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. Now, ironically, there's your answer to the disciples' question, Who is this? Who is this? It is Jesus, Son of the Most High 
God. That's who he is. The demons recognize who Jesus is. They're not surprised that Jesus has the authority to calm a storm. They know he is the son of the most high God. The demons know it, but the disciples don't in the same way. Jesus commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. So now you're told something else about this man. He was so feared that he had been chained, and the power of the demons inside of him was such that he was empowered to break the chains. And then the demons drove him into solitary places by himself. Verse 30, Jesus asked him, what is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. The name legion, same word, same term, used for the largest company of soldiers in the Roman army. Remember, you've heard, if you know anything about history, you know, the Roman legions. And so in Rome, the army, the legio, the legion, was the largest military unit. It had, it depends on you listen to, it had anywhere between 5,000 and 6,000 soldiers. Probably when the demon replies that they are legion, you're not supposed to do the math. But what you are supposed to figure out is this. This man is not possessed by a demon. We've already seen that Jesus has the power to drive out a demon. This man is not possessed by seven demons, as we were told earlier in Luke 7 that Mary Magdalene was, or Luke 8, actually, Mary Magdalene, that seven demons were driven out of her. This man has the largest military unit of the company of the army of hell inside of him. In the same way that Israel is oppressed by the Roman armies, this man is oppressed by a demonic army. He has no power. He is absolutely helpless. He is absolutely under the thumb of an entire company of the army of hell. And Jesus, with a word, commands the legion of demons to come out. And they do. They beg him not to be driven into the abyss. And then we're told in verse 32, a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs, and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. Now, today, this tends to create uh, a problem for people. Why would Jesus let all of these pigs die? Yeah, we, and and we do, we do need to be. Uh, actually, I have to be. I have to be honest. One of the things that has largely increased my sensitivity to animals is when our family got a dog. Okay, so no cheap shots at animal lovers. You know, we're not we're not going to do that. Uh, even though sometimes it is still funny. I mean, we're not we're not going to do that. Um, you have to wonder, but why? What is it with these pigs? You know, why all these drowned pigs? 
And, and the commentators kind of trip all over themselves trying to provide, you know, explanations and all of the rest. It's noted that you know, in the Old Testament law, pigs were unclean animals, and so, you know, demons are unclean spirits, and have unclean spirits and unclean animals, sort of a, a pictorial lesson of, you know, their origin and all of the rest and proper homes. And there, there may be some elements of truth. That probably the Jewish readers would have, would have picked up on that sort of uh, connection. And probably more to the point, um, what you see with the pigs in their madness and death really is in the animal kingdom exactly what the demons are trying to do to people. That is, they were torturing this man. They were driving him mad. They were driving him out to different places. We're told in another time when Jesus casted a demon that the demon had often thrown this, this young boy into the fire or into the water to burn him or to drown him. So demons, the demonic is on the side of death and destruction. And the pigs illustrate that. It's worth noticing, too, that Jesus doesn't tell them to go into the pigs. That's their idea. So Jesus doesn't say, come out and go into those pigs. They say, can we go into the pigs? And Jesus says, fine, go ahead. So Jesus grants permission. It's not a word of command. But more than anything, you've completely missed the point of the passage if you're more concerned with the animals than with the child of Abraham. In other words, if you're more concerned with the animal than with the human being who has been liberated, you've clearly missed the point of what is happening here and the power of Jesus, as the townspeople do. So in verse 34, when those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and the countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. No longer possessed by an army of demons, no longer naked, sitting at the feet of Jesus. Sitting at the feet of Jesus is the posture of discipleship, transformed in terms of his life. And notice, the townspeople are afraid. The disciples were afraid after, the disciples were afraid before Jesus calmed the sea. Then they were afraid after he calmed the sea for different reasons. Now these townspeople who know what this man is like see the transformation and they are also afraid. But notice this. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. This is a very sad next sentence. So, he got into the boat and left. If you don't want Jesus and you ask him to leave, he just might honor your request. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. And this, in many ways, becomes a model of discipleship. A transformed life, willing to follow Jesus wherever he wants you to go, 
and then being obedient. Jesus says, go home and tell what's happened. And he does. I mean, that's our job. You know, the Lord transforms our lives, and then we are to go and tell other people about the transforming work of God in our lives. But connecting it then in terms of the theme of, of Luke 8 here, why should you trust Jesus? Well, with a word, he stills the storms. With a word, he drives out an army of the company of hell. Here is someone who speaks and his words have an authority and an intrinsic power unlike anyone else. There, there is no philosopher. There, there is no pundit. You know, there is no politician. There is no sage. There is no prophet. There is no one like him. It's his words and his words alone that you are to build your life upon. But there's more. Now, when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Now, you have, Luke has set this up beautifully. There's such a contrast here. What did the crowd and the Gerasenes do? They asked Jesus to leave. So he left. But now there's another crowd, and they welcome him. Very different reactions. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. So we've seen Jesus calm the storm. We've seen Jesus drive out an army, an army of the, or a company of the army of hell. So he can, he has authority in word over the powers of nature. He has authority in word over all the forces of darkness. But we are finite beings. We get sick. We die. What can Jesus do for us? Are there limitations to the power of his word? You can't have a bigger contrast between Jairus and the demoniac, or the man who was possessed by the demons. Here's a man unclean, naked, driven out of society, possessed by an, you know, a company of demons. And here's Jairus, the synagogue leader, you know, a, a model citizen, highly regarded and holy. But his daughter is dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. And this is actually, in many ways, this is sort of the equivalent of trying to get you know, downtown Toronto at rush hour. You know, it's like a stop-and-go traffic, but it's human traffic. You know, he can't get anywhere. You know, the crowds are crushing him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. I have a good friend uh, who on Friday defended his PhD dissertation in Old Testament at McMaster Divinity College. And I was talking to him on Monday, uh, and he said to me, we were talking about the text that we're preaching on, he said that when he did this section in uh, the Gospel of Mark, he preached on a theology of menstruation. And I told him, I don't think I'm quite that mature. Yeah, so, you know, there's, there actually is interesting. If you read the Old Testament law and all the rest, I'm not going to bother with that, except to say this. When a woman had her period or any sort of discharge or bleeding, she was considered ceremonially unclean. And to the point where if a woman sat on, if a Jewish woman with her period sat on a chair, if anyone else sat on that chair, they became unclean. 
If anyone touched her, then they became unclean. And so here this woman, who has been ceremonially unclean for more than a decade, and thus lost all the compassion of human touch, thus lost all social sort of intercourse with people, uh, conversations and any sort of a hug for comfort. Even people would be nervous in the same room with her because they don't want to become unclean themselves. Here she risks it all. She, She risks being scorned and hated because the crowd is so tight that as she's going to Jesus, she must be touching people to get there. But she will let nothing stop her from coming to Jesus. And she sneaks up behind him, doesn't even feel worthy to bother him, just sneaks up behind him and just touches the very edge of his cloak. And something incredible happens. Jesus does not become unclean. Everyone else that she had touched for 12 years became unclean, except for Jesus. In fact, Jesus is so clean, he's so pure, that his purity transfers to her. That never happened. Purity never transferred to anyone. Uncleanness, defilement transferred. So that if someone was unclean and they touched a clean person, the clean person always became unclean. But not with Jesus, for the first time ever. Someone is so clean that when he is touched by what defiles, that which defiles disappears. She touches the edge of his cloak, and her bleeding immediately stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus recognized there's a different type of touch. He said, someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. This was the greatest moment of her life. But the crowd and her involvement with Jesus brought about the worst moment in Jairus' life. Because while Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Which is a remarkably crass way of saying that and, and sharing that news. But as Jesus was on route, if it wasn't for the crowd, if it wasn't for the circumstances, if it wasn't for the people, if it wasn't for this woman, maybe he would have got there on time. Maybe he would have been able to be there before she died. And then Jesus says something, which I have always found to be either the most cruel thing imaginable or the most glorious. Don't be afraid. This man has just been told that his daughter that he loves has died. And Jesus says, don't be afraid. Just believe. And she will be healed. 
at this point, you could be forgiven, possibly, in the crowd for thinking that this person, Jesus, has just written a check that could never be cashed. Do not be afraid. Just believe, and she will be healed. Well, why would you listen to him? Why would you ever listen to those kinds of words? Why would you ever listen to someone who says, your daughter is dead, but you don't need to be afraid. Just believe, just trust me, and she will live. She will be healed. She will rise. Why would you listen to someone like that? I mean, that, that's, a, that's a sign that they're crazy. You know, why would you listen to Jesus? When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. And Jesus says this, stop wailing. She is not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. And you must not mis- misunderstand the euphemism that Jesus uses. When Jesus says she's not dead, but she's asleep, he's not saying she actually is just deeply, deeply asleep, and you just can't tell, so you think she's dead. He's saying she is dead, but not permanently. She's just asleep. In other words, she's going to regain consciousness. Don't say she's dead. That's the wrong diagnosis. She is dead, but she's not dead, if you know what I mean. You know? and, and the people who know perfectly well what death looks like, you have to remember, too, in this, in this culture, people, you know, they, they didn't call the undertakers. You, you dealt with death in your home. There, there, wasn't, there weren't the sort of hospitals and hospices that we have. So, so people died at home. They knew what death looked like. They know she's dead. So they laugh, which is a perfectly reasonable response if it is anyone except Jesus. Why should you trust Jesus' words? Even Jesus who says, build your whole life on my words. And then he speaks a word and a storm is healed. He speaks a word and the companies of darkness, the, the army of hell is vanquished. He, he is touched and someone who has a terminal disease is healed. But this is death. This is the last enemy. This is the great obstacle. This is what destroys all human meaning and value. This is what is the great negation of the curse, bringing to nothing all of our empires, all of our relationships, all of our ambitions, all of our thoughts. This is the end. There is nothing greater than death in our human experience. And this is not Jesus swooping in before she dies, showing that he has the power to prevent death. This is Jesus coming after death has been in, has in fact occurred. This is Jesus coming in to a death room where there is a little girl who has died and everyone knows it. Don't be afraid, just believe. She is not dead, she is asleep. And everyone mocks him. Why would you listen to someone like that? Why would you trust his words? Because his word not only calms the storm, and his word not only drives out an army of demons, but his word raises the dead. But he took her by the hand and said, My child, get up. Her spirit returned. And at once, she stood up. 
there really are no words to try to describe how surprising that would have been. How much of a shock that would be to see this girl who had died be told to get up. In the same way that you can go and you can talk to the snow all day long. Stop snowing. It's not going to listen. Dead people are no more likely to listen to you and be responsive than the snow is. You know, there is nothing you can do to speak and to communicate with someone who is dead. But Jesus speaks and her spirit returns to her. Her life is restored to her. Jesus speaks and generates newness of life inside of her. She stood up immediately and Jesus told them to give her something to eat. And this is one of the things I, you know, you have to love about scripture. Her parents were astonished. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Her parents were astonished, but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. What Jesus says on the face of it is absolutely absurd. Don't be afraid, just believe she's not dead. She's asleep. Speaking to a corpse, little girl, I say to you, get up. It's either grotesque or it's the most beautiful and powerful thing in the universe. Jesus speaks a word and triumphs over death itself. Why why build your life on the words of Jesus? Oh, he can, he can calm the circumstances and the storms of life metaphorically. Yes, he can. He can, he can conquer you know, the, the powers of darkness. Yes, he can. But more than that, Jesus can speak a word and he can conquer your death. Behold, Jesus says, time is coming and has now come. And I will speak and the dead will hear my voice. The dead will be raised. Lazarus, come forth. And there is one day when, as the child of God, it's going to be your personal name that heads that sentence. Sam, come forth. Steve, come forth. Long dead. Long in the grave. Come out. Today is the day of resurrection. Today is the day of life. Today is the day when the last enemy, which I defeated on the cross and in my resurrection, has been forever put under my feet. Come out and live. And so I say, I will build my life on the words of Jesus. He is a God in man. He is someone who has demonstrated to me the absolute trustworthiness and power and authority of his word over everything in the world, everything in life, and everything in death. And so you build your life on the words of Jesus. There is no one like him. He gives you what you need for life in this world. He gives you what you need for the life to come in eternity. He gives you what you need even to live in the midst of your death. Well, may God help us. May God help us to have ears to hear. And may we see the proofs that he has given us 
of the transforming power and authority and goodness of his word. Those who have ears, let them hear. I'm going to ask our musicians to come uh, and lead us in our closing song.